Testing, testing, can you hear me? I guess so. Good evening, everyone. My name is Arthur White. I'm the director of external affairs with Detroit Opera, and welcome to the Detroit Opera House as we are opening uh, our new season uh, with one of the most beloved operas in the canon, uh, Puccini's Madama Butterfly. We are so excited that you are here. Uh, this, uh, by the way, this production tonight uh, marks the tenth time that we have mounted a production of Butterfly in our 52-year history. So, 52 years uh, bringing premier opera and dance to this region. We are thrilled and we are thrilled you're here. Yes, a little applause for that. Uh, so tonight we're going to take a bit of a look at uh, the history of this piece. Uh, we have two special guests, uh, one who's uh, very intimately involved in the production, and we're going to hear from him. Uh, but uh, when I think of this particular opera, uh, operabase.com, which tracks all of the worldwide performances of opera lists, Butterfly is the sixth most frequently performed opera in the world today, which when you think about it, that's pretty amazing when you think of all the thousands of operas that have been written uh, over the centuries. Uh, it premiered in 1904 at La Scala uh, with a libretto by Luigi Illica and Giuseppe Giacosa. Uh, it's based off of John Luther Long's Madame Butterfly, uh, a story that was told to him by his sister, Jeannie Carell. Now, the story was dramatized by American playwright David Belasco, his play Madame Butterfly, A Tragedy of Japan. Now, this had opened on Broadway in 1900, uh, and by the summer of that year, this production had moved to London, and it was in London that Puccini got the chance to see this uh, play. Now, I've always been kind of curious to know this, because I knew that Puccini did not speak English. How he found himself at a play uh, in English, uh, I have no idea, but maybe uh, one of our experts here can uh, enlighten us. Uh, but he clearly was moved by this play because he decided to set it to music. He was looking at doing Cyrano de Bergerac. We all know that story. Uh, that's the opera he was going to tackle next. But he ends up dropping that and giving us Butterfly instead. Now, the opera has not been out of the top ten uh, ever since. Uh, however, it was dropped uh, by the Metropolitan Opera House in between 1942 and 1945 due to military hostilities uh, between the United States and Japan. Uh, but although it is one of the most frequently performed operas now, it was a complete flop at the time it premiered in 1904, which makes me want to cue our first guest. Uh, this gentleman is, uh, he is the president of the Verdi Opera Theater of Michigan. Uh, I often pride myself as knowing a lot about trivia and a lot about opera, but this guy bests me every single time, Mr. John Zaretti. Thank you, sir, for being here. Let me get you a mic. Oh, there. Can we hear you? Let's thank see. Thank you. Yes. Ah, thank you, John, for being here. Yes. Yeah, move in a little closer so we can see in the light. Sure. All right. Fantastic. So we're talking about uh, this opera. Uh, my first thing I want to ask you uh, is, of course, I, as I mentioned, uh, 1900, he finds himself in London. Uh, do we know why he was in London? I, don't, I know Tosca had premiered that year. Was he in, right. in town doing Tosca, or what, why was he in London in 1900? Well, he, he also had an interest, and in, uh, he had a friend, uh, Cyril Seligman, uh, was married and everything, but uh, long story. Uh, you saying there was some romantic something going on here? <laughs> was beyond anyway. Right. No, he was there, and uh, so they decided to go to the theater, to the theater, and uh, it happened to be Madame Butterfly uh, by Belasco, and uh, Puccini fell in love with the story. With uh, you could you could see 
uh, what was going on, and uh, Seligman, I'm sure, explained to him uh, something that he might have uh, asked her and everything. And uh, before long, uh, he uh, decided to write to Belasco and to get the copyrights and uh, the, the contract to write an opera based on that story. Yes. And uh, in between, he was uh, asking, uh, looking at books, uh, records, uh, discs, you know, the, the old disc. I, I happened to be at, in Chile this summer in Puccini, and uh, they have a little museum there in Tuscany. And uh, he's got these Japanese uh, big discs uh, that uh, he wanted to hear the sounds and uh, not the sound of the classical music of Japan, but the, or the folklore or the, of the people, how they sounded, the, 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 the tone and everything. And uh, at the time, uh, it was very, Japan was very uh, popular, Japanese uh, fashions and Japanese uh, uh, actors used to come to, to Italy. And, um, um, the story, we should go back to the story of uh, John Luther Long yes. because he, had a, he was an American living in uh, Philadelphia and he had a sister that lived in Akazaki for many years and she wrote to him copiously many, many letters about uh, the story of this person, of this would-be uh, Madame Butterfly. Uh, actually, that actually happened that... You may, you may like it because this way you won't feel as bad at the end of the story of the Madame Butterfly, that this woman was, this young girl, this geisha, art hostess, as they called them then, and she was, she fell in love with a Navy man because Nakazaki was the only harbor that was open to, um, to foreign countries at the time. And only the one that, very interesting for, uh, for uh, the, the story of the opera, uh, because it, they accepted Christianity in that Nakazaki. That was the only, the only port that was open to foreign countries. And then the United States came in 1846 and so on. And, uh, uh, the the other the other they signed an agreement you know and everything, so uh, it, uh, it it happened that uh, that uh, Puccini uh, heard about it and everything and he sent to Belasco, Belasco and Luther Long felt why not you know uh, if he wants to do an opera on it opera in comparison to all the productions that they were doing in England and everything. And uh, they gave them uh, the, the, the right to write the opera without any copyrights. It must have been the, the deal of the century yeah. because they, they felt that, uh, you know, they didn't lose anything. And, uh, and it turned into Madame Butterfly, the opera, which is one of the most uh, beloved operas in their repertory of any theater in the world. I'm sure David Belasco was kicking himself after that. <laughs> so let's talk, I mentioned that uh, the opera was a total flop. 
uh, at the time it premiered uh, in uh, 1904. Tell us about uh, what do you, tell us about what the opening night. How how did that pan out? Uh, the opening was night was panned, I guess. Uh, again, you have to go back to a little bit uh, the story of uh, uh, Puccini. In the con he was in the Conservatory of Music, and his uh, roommate was Mascagni, the 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 conductor uh, and the composer, conductor and everything of. Uh, Cavalleria Rusticana and uh, when they went to, first of all, when they went to the opening in 1904 at La Scala at the opera was a very long one and Puccini was constantly, constantly uh, changing or reducing and Revising. Uh, providing yeah. things like that and uh, uh, there was also the story that uh, Mascagni by that time they, had, they were rivals because Cavalleria Rusticana had also come out and everything. And uh, so there was a clack. Uh, a lot of group of people that started booing, making noises and everything. And uh, at the end, uh, Puccini, uh, it was uh, flap that night. And uh, he uh, uh, closed it. He, he, he took the opera back and he had to pay royalties also for the night because they wouldn't continue. And he revised it in Brescia the next time and then in Paris and uh, reduced it and cut and everything. And it, the, 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 one, the music that we are hearing tonight is based on, the, on those uh, cuts at the Brescia or the Paris uh, uh, versions of that opera, which has become Popular I also understand there was no tenor aria originally written. I'm sure that wouldn't uh, didn't settle well, I imagine, with some of the uh, crowd as well. With what? I'm sorry. Having no tenor aria. Oh, the tenor aria, yes. Well, as part, as part of the uh, changes that he made, he introduced the, the aria Dio Fiorito Zil at the end, and uh, so it happened to be the aria that uh, when it opened at the Met, uh, Enrico Caruso, Right. Uh, was was the was the singer, so you can just imagine it was a tremendous success by then. And I'm sure he would have not sung that uh, that opera had there not been an aria for him. That was the height. He had just made his no. debut uh, in uh, 1903, by the way, at the Met. Right. Fantastic. So actually, I'm, John, we're running out of time. I'm sorry. I got I got to introduce our next guest. But if you no want to if you, you want to hang on, you can certainly hang on because yes, I want to talk you. about uh, first of all before I bring our uh, guest, I should tell you yes. uh, that this new production of Madama Butterfly is a co-production of Detroit. Opera, Cincinnati Opera, Pittsburgh Opera, and Utah Opera. Uh, the theme this season is Collide and Collage. And I can't think of a better example of an opera where cultures are colliding this East and West. Uh, so with this American naval officer attempting to impose his cultural perspectives onto one Japanese woman and her culture. Uh, now this all-Japanese and Japanese-American creative team, uh, led by stage director Matthew Ozawa, have reclaimed the opera's narrative through the lens of an entirely female Japanese design collective. Now, the director, Matthew Ozawa, has said that this production seeks to release the opera's wings for all to express anew. Now, when the opera opens tonight, uh, we're going to be in present day uh, here in the United States. We're going to meet B.F. Pinkerton. He enters his apartment, and he dons a virtual reality headset. 
and to basically escape into fantasy. Now, within moments, he joins a game which transports him to Nagasaki, where he embodies his avatar as a U.S. naval lieutenant, and he meets his fantasy, the beautiful geisha Chocho-san, of course, also known as Butterfly. Now, in this production, uh, all of the opera's events uh, are the invention of this modern, uh, modern-day gaming uh, Pinkerton. And so this uh, lets me know we're going to uh, welcome our next guest to tell us more about this because he's involved in this production. It's our conductor. Uh, he has fast become one of the most exciting and versatile conductors coming out of the United States. Uh, he hails from the East Coast. Uh, he has a master's degree from Yale uh, School of Music. He also graduated from the Curtis Institute of Music. He was a violinist in the Philadelphia Orchestra, and in 2016, he became assistant conductor with that orchestra, and things seemed to really take off from there. Uh, Sarasota Orchestra, Rhode Island Philharmonic, Minnesota Orchestra, uh, the orchestra in Quebec, uh, Detroit Symphony, London Phil, Tokyo Phil, Houston, Brussels, Toulouse. Uh, of course, also no stranger to opera. He's conducted Bohème at Spoleto Festival, uh, the Castleton Festival, Opera Montreal, Curtis Opera Theater. Uh, he made his Metropolitan Opera debut this past season in Kevin Putt's The Hours with Renee Fleming, uh, as well as Terrence Blanchard's Opera Champion. Uh, he's makes his debut in this, uh, with the company in this production, this run, uh, Mr. Kenjo Watanabe. Let's welcome him. All right. ah. Maestro, thank you for being here. This you know, is very exciting. I, I think it's about 30 years too early for the maestro thing, <laughs> oh, so why don't we right. just go for a Ken all show right. for now, and he's even, he's we'll modest. take care of the maestro stuff later. <laughs> he's modest, too. That's fantastic. Thank you for being I here. I say I was modest. <laughs> uh, just the maestro part. All right. So I want to hear, first thing, what was your first experience with this opera? Well, that's a great question. It's actually the very first opera I saw at the Metropolitan Opera. Um, I was probably in my early teens, maybe 12 or 13, and a family friend said, hey, I have an extra ticket to go see an opera. Do you want to go see one? It's really the first time I ever even experienced opera at the Met or even elsewhere, I don't think. I grew up a violinist, so I grew up very much in the symphonic world. Wasn't very much, you know, my parents loved classical music, but they didn't play a lot of opera at home, so this was a new discovery for me. It was an interesting experience, and it's very um, apropos of this production, because when I watched it, I knew it was about some part of my history, but there was nothing on stage that I identified with. That it was very much like, wow, it's supposed to be about my culture in some way, and very tangentially, but I, it never resonated like, oh my gosh, this is something that's about me, or I never saw anything about myself in that production. Of course, the music was beautiful, the singing was immaculate, you know, it's, I had a great time, but I came away not at all of even clocking for myself that it was about Japanese culture. And so now working on this particular production where so much thought has been put into how can we more identify with this story uh, has been a really enriching experience for me now to be conducting it as well. Fantastic. So when I think back, uh, of course, Puccini writes this in 1904. He wrote it for the audience that was in front of him at the time. And if we, of course, are not that audience. Uh, we In this culture now, you know, in 1903, women weren't even allowed to vote in this country. The civil rights movement was 50 years off. Uh, there was no such thing as the internet, uh, cell phones, uh, commercial air travel. And so uh, one can look at this piece now and say, there are stereotypes 
in this piece. We can accept that, or we, we recognize that today. But I also, we also recognize Puccini infused this heroine with such beauty and, and humanity, and that's also true. So how do we sort of, how do we square that opera today? Some might say maybe we shouldn't be doing this piece uh, anymore. I just wondering, where do, you, where do you come down on that? Well, I think that it's important to acknowledge the fact that this is written by a white man who, again, did not go to Japan ever, did not have a first-hand primary experience of what it's like to be there. Um, but it is around that same time where Ravel and Debussy were imagining what the Basque country music would be like, so there was a lot of Spanish music that was kind of impressionistically, you know, we call it, oh, it's impressionistic, but it's like, did these people ever go, you know, I mean, La Mer, that famous story that he never actually went to the ocean. <laughs> he said, oh, it's, it's, it's an, I'm writing this piece in the image of an ocean, but I'd never actually went there while I was writing it. So it's this kind of idea and fantasy of things that I think a lot of composers and artists, let's even talk interdisciplinarily, um, people were always imagining what foreign countries were like because, of course, you couldn't travel as easily. Now that we're in such an intercultural age where a Japanese-born boy could come to the States and find himself conducting the Detroit Opera or the Metropolitan Opera is something that was not easily achieved back then. So we also have to recognize that because of that, um, we have to be even more careful about what stereotypes we are perpetuating in our um, in recreating these uh, masterworks. And I do believe that this is a masterwork. Are there problems with it? Yes, but I think it also serves as all of you are proving right now that you're here for this uh, engaging talk. Thanks to you, Arthur, is to actually talk about these things to say, okay, what is problematic about it, right? And you know, I think we can go through all those things right now or later or in your research, but, um, you know, people have a skewed sense of what a geisha is. Um, it has become much more toward kind of a, a sexual fantasy kind of geisha image that is just completely not true in ever, really, in the history of that, that profession. And um, I, what I find interesting when we go back to the text, let's say, is that actually when you look at the text of Butterfly, there is a lot of agency that Puccini puts in her character. Indeed. That it's not, she's not someone that is just letting these things happen to her. Of course, there are things that are happening to her that she has no control over that we cannot condone in this age. But especially in second act, there's a lot of things that she takes upon herself, and there's a lot of agency that I think we, we appreciate from that character, and I think that makes it even more heartbreaking at the end that the ultimate choice that she makes at the end in this agency is her death. Can you tell us, we mentioned with John uh, Zaretti, uh, Puccini revised this no less than five times. What version, as a matter of fact, when I was watching the, uh, I got a chance to see the premiere when this opened in uh, Cincinnati in July, which, the, which by the way, the conductor for that is, is uh, for that production is here. Thank you, hello, sir. Um, uh, what, what is the music we're gonna hear? Because there were, there were things, there were some, there were some measures. I, I was like, I don't remember that at all. So could you talk about what we're gonna hear? Sure, there's nothing uh, missing, let's say, from what you're normally used to with this, uh, with the Butterfly production. You're actually getting extra music. So actually, if you're thinking that your ticket was a little bit more expensive, that's, that's why. Thank you for that. <laughs> so there's actually more music. And what, 
what I understand, correct, and John, correct me if I'm wrong, is that after this flop of a premiere, a lot of his advisors were saying, no, 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 you need to explain more what was going on, you know, behind the, the, the characters of things. So it's, it's more about kind of explaining even more how careless and, um, yeah, careless uh, Pinkerton is, and then there's more about fleshing out Kate Pinkerton as a, as a, as a character at the end of the opera. Um, so it's more exploratory in the way, explains more about these characters, and so there's added music. So with my, my personal preference is kind of a mix of the two versions that we have right now might be, uh, might be good, and that sometimes I find that because these things were kind of, in, we call them inserts, so they're just, there's music that's kind of spliced in between two bars, and so sometimes that can kind of throw you for a loop, especially if you're used to the more um, conventional version, but it does open up for much more in interesting relationships, and maybe we take these characters a little bit more in depth. Is it, would you say there's so many more, maybe more minutes to this? Is there a way to even quantify that, or it's hard to say? Or are you afraid to say? No. <laughs> uh, I haven't clocked how many more minutes it is, but I would say maybe up to about 10 minutes more of, so, you know, do your math with your ticket prices <laughs> and, you know, all the box office later. Fantastic. First of all, how did you get involved in this production? Um, great question. Um, Yuval Sharon um, gave me a call um, a few years ago for, um, there, there was a need for a conductor to step in last minute for a bohème that was happening here, and so I got to know the house from then, and then uh, here I am a few years later, but uh, Christine has also been a very great supporter of mine, so uh, no, it's just great to be in Detroit, and uh, I spent three and a half, four weeks here now, so it's been great. I went to the Lions game last Sunday. Uh, it was a good game to go to, huh? Um, so yeah, I've just really enjoyed, um, you know, this is the part of opera that I love because I kind of split lies between symphonic and operatic. And symphonic weeks, you spend maybe five days in a city and then you're out of there going to the next thing. And it's so nice to actually sit in a city like this and explore a little bit. I went to the art, uh, DIA the, uh, the other day and just try to imagine what it's like to live in Detroit in a way, which kind of gets me into the vibe and the mood of the city, and I always believe that that kind of filters through in my music making wherever I am. So uh, it's been a great stay here. Fantastic. I'm wondering, did uh, Matthew Ozawa's production with the whole creative team, did you change or did you gain any different insight into this piece working on this production? I think more generally, I really appreciated looking into the rehearsal room and seeing, you know, normally I'm so used to a mostly white room white stage director, white artists, and it was just so nice to see a room that was full of people that, you know, seemingly are of Asian, Asian heritage and sharing that experience. And we found ourselves at meals and stuff talking about what it's like to be an Asian artist in this field that, you know, sometimes we mistake the fact that, oh, we see so many Asians in the orchestra, you know, violinists or whatever, but we don't think about, oh, are there enough Asian conductors or Asian opera singers or Asian stage directors or Asian artistic administrators? And it was so nice to have those conversations and not feel like you're the only one that's thinking these thoughts. And so generally, I'm just appreciative of Matthew to bring this team and bring this dialogue and allow artists like me and everyone that's on stage to engage in that kind of conversation, which is so, so essential right now to make sure that we don't want to exclude anybody. We want to include everybody in this kind of um, 
energy to say, look, we are trying to get as many people involved in this beautiful art form that we all love, I think is the right energy. And so this opera and this production and this team has allowed us to have that conversation. So looking forward to its many other lives as it goes now to uh, Utah and also Pittsburgh. Fantastic. I wanted to ask you about, so you just made this past year your Metropolitan Opera uh, debut. That is a, that's huge. That's major. Uh, anything that sticks out, particularly in your memory about that night or that production? Well, the first time jumping in there was, um, it's, it's interesting now because I'm actually going back to the Met to do the full run of the hours this, this um, past, uh, this next uh, spring, which is really exciting. But the first time I made my debut was, I was doing all the staging rehearsals with the singers and piano, but I never had a chance to go into the pit and conduct the orchestra for rehearsals because the rest of the run was conducted by Yannick Nezis again. And, you know, we're not going to say, hey, Yannick, uh, why don't you let me conduct this time? So the first time really making my debut and meeting the orchestra was was when I jumped into the pit for the last performance of the hours. And so it was very funny to see a lot of the orchestra being like, who the heck is this guy? And uh, to make it, out, make it through that performance and having it go well and then being reinvited like this for the next season, it's, uh, you know, you don't think at 35 that you're gonna get to conduct at the Met. And so it was really a treasured memory for me. And uh, yeah, I'm still pinching myself that I get to go back there this spring. So it's very exciting. I have to ask one Renee Fleming question because I adore Renee Fleming. So you come in this production, as the conductor, you know, the conductor is the ringleader. The conductor is really kind of running the whole show. And is it, what's the balance, like the power dynamic, like when you come in and you have someone who's probably been singing longer than maybe you've been alive. Uh, is there, how was that to sort of work with her or any of those uh, veteran artists, whether it's in the pit or on the stage? I mean, before meeting her, it was, you know, when I play that out in my head, it's very intimidating. What I appreciate very much about singers at that level or at the Metropolitan Opera in general, and of course there are some exceptions to this rule, but everyone is at the top of their game. So there's no need for this ego. So for me, it was so wonderful to be in front of Kelly O'Hara, Joyce Donato, and Renee. And of course, Yannick wasn't there for the first few rehearsals, so I have to be the one to say, excuse me, Renee, actually here, you're one beat late, and uh, here actually, um, could you watch me here? You know, there are things that I was, you know, because in the, in the need in that moment I was saying and then playing it back in my head while I'm in bed, I'm like, oh my gosh, did I just say that to Renee? So those, there, there are moments like this, but I love that there is such a great rapport and willingness to listen to this young kid that was at the Met. Um, and we just established such a great trust. And so I'm also so beyond thankful that the, basically the entire cast is coming back for this run. So it's very exciting. We're going to have to leave it there. Mr. Kensho Watanabe, thank you so much for thank being here. Thank you very here. much. We Enjoy have about a minute. Thank you all are going to love this production. So we'll see you in a bit. Thank you.